Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters, a bi-weekly podcast featuring in-depth conversations with and about the creators of lyrics and music that stand the test of time. I'm Scott B. Beaumont. And I'm Paul Duncan. To make sure you don't miss an episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also keep up with us on social media by searching for one word, Songcraft Show, or visit us at songcraftshow.com. And if you believe in the Songcraft mission, please consider supporting us by visiting patreon.com slash songcraftshow. Our guest on this episode of Songcraft is Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Roger McGuinn. Best known for his work with The Birds, Roger's distinctive 12-string electric guitar style helped propel the singles Mr. Tambourine Man and Turn, Turn, Turn to the top of the charts. As a songwriter, Roger wrote or co-wrote many of the band's classics, including 8 Miles High, 5D, Mr. Spaceman, So You Wanna Be a Rock and Roll Star, Drugstore Truck Driving Man, Ballad of Easy Rider, Chestnut Mare, and others. He launched a solo career in the 1970s, releasing albums that explored new musical territory and touring as part of Bob Dylan's Rolling Thunder Review. By the end of the decade, Roger had reunited with former Birds bandmates Chris Hillman and Gene Clark as a trio known as McGuinn, Clark, and Hillman, which yielded the McGuinn-penned Top 40 single, Don't You Write Her Off. His 1991 comeback album, Back From Rio, included the Billboard mainstream rock hits King of the Hill and Someone to Love, and featured songs co-written with Tom Petty, Dave Stewart, Jeff Lynne, Mike Campbell, and McGuinn's wife Camilla, who has since become his primary songwriting partner. A lifelong folk music enthusiast, McGuinn has recorded hundreds of songs as part of his online Folk Den project. A compilation album, Treasures from the Folk Den, earned Roger his third Grammy nomination. Most recently, the three surviving founding members of the Birds, McGuinn, Hillman, and David Crosby, have put together an oversized 400-page coffee table book of photographs and oral history called The Birds, 1964-1967, to which is available for order in both standard and limited edition autographed versions at birdsbook.com. Part 1 Songcraft listeners, You've been around long enough. You could probably tell me who this episode is brought to you by. <laughs> you could probably tell me that it's brought to you by Pearl Snap Studios. You could probably tell me that Pearl Snap is the one stop you need to go to to take your rudimentary iPhone recording to a fully realized, beautiful, radio-ready production. You could probably tell me that Justin and his team of production elves are always ready <laughs> to do the work to turn something that you've created from its genesis into something much, much closer to a final product. You could probably tell me that, but it's my job to tell you. And it's time to take that head knowledge and turn it into heart knowledge, ladies and gentlemen. It? It's time to take that step. Maybe you've got a song that you think is uh, a great song and you wish the world could hear it, but you don't have a great high-quality demo of it. And maybe you're kind of a little self-conscious about your own voice or your own guitar, piano-playing skills, and you think, gosh, if I could just get a recording of this song, then maybe I could actually get it heard, get it out there. Uh, so go to pearlsnapstudios.com. Let Justin know that the folks at Songcraft sent you, and they'll even give you a discount on your first demo or production if you let them know that uh, that you found out about them through us. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's just about taking that first step, getting over that hump and saying, you know what, I'm not going to be embarrassed about this concept or idea. This is what these guys do. They're not going to make fun of me. They're not going right. to go like, what is this? We can't do anything with that. These guys are pros. So let them help you be the very best you as a songwriter that you can be. PearlSnapStudios.com. 
And the Pearl Snap guys have been a part of so many of our episodes. Can you believe that we're almost to number 200? We are breathing down its neck. Yeah, we're so close. And, and probably the biggest milestone that we've had up to this point would be our 100th episode. And we had a very special guest for that episode, a guy named Lamont Dozier. Um, as part of the songwriting team, Holland Dozier Holland, uh, Lamont was a part of writing some of, you know, just the biggest hits ever to come out of the Motown era um, and became a personal friend of yours as well. Yeah, I mean, we're talking Stop in the Name of Love. We're talking How Sweet It Is to Be Loved by You. We're talking I Can't Help Myself, which is, parentheses, Sugar Pie Honey yeah, Bunch, which right. is the way I think most people know that song. Uh, you Can't Hurry Love, Heat Wave, Nowhere to Run, Baby, I Need Your Love, and Reach Out, I'll Be There, Baby Love. I mean, you know, unbelievable It's an catalog. entire road trip playlist right there. <laughs> right, unbelievable catalog. Um, and yeah, I met Lamont. Because we did uh, the interview on Songcraft. I didn't know him prior to that. Um, and through that, we wound up collaborating on his memoir, which is called How Sweet It Is. And um, sweet is a great word for Lamont. He <laughs> was a sweet man. He was just a really uh, kind, humble, generous talented person. And, mm. and I went out and spent a week with him in Las Vegas where he was living at the time um, to work on uh, the book with him. And Lamont showed his love to people by cooking for him. Huh. And he made me some big old spreads. Like <laughs> I'm talking like crazy, like family style cooking, but it was just me and him. Wow. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, I, I've never been as full uh, both in my belly and my heart as I was just <laughs> hanging out with him. I mean, he was uh, just a, a, an incredible man. Um, so if you haven't read How Sweet It Is, I definitely recommend it, not because I was involved with it, but just because he is an incredible person with incredible stories and, and great songwriting advice. So uh, Lamont and the Holland Brothers and the music that they created is truly part of the fabric of American culture, and we're going to miss him. Yeah, and, and go back and listen to that episode if you haven't heard it yet, or even if you have, I, I went back and listened again last week, and, and uh, those stories just popped right back up. It's super fun to listen to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a, a much happier bit of news uh, last week uh, that, that I found out about is that my co-host here, Mr. Paul Duncan, um, is nominated for a Dove Award for songwriter of the year he's actually nominated for more than that he's, he's actually nominated for one of the specific songs that he wrote but this man had so much success on the christian music charts uh in the past year that he is one of five nominees for songwriter of the year and if you're not familiar with the dove awards the dove awards is the equivalent of the grammys for the Christian music world. So like in the country music world, you have the CMA awards in the, in the Christian music world, you have the dove awards and those are the pinnacle of, uh, recognition for success in those respective genres. So I want to be not the first, but I want to be one of the many to say, dude, that's awesome. Congratulations. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate that. And I'm also a little concerned that you're speaking out in a public forum because I don't want the doves to realize they've made a horrible mistake and, <laughs> and just pull the whole thing back. And, and so I'm, I was trying to keep it under wraps, but, but now the, the, the news is out. Like, but, oh, um, it was supposed to be Raul Duncan and that <laughs> exactly. R printed as a P for some reason. Yeah. Shoot. Um, <laughs> yeah, pretty, pretty staggering. Um, super honored by it. And um, yeah. Just, just kind of can't believe it. I don't, I don't, I don't even know what to say. 
Well, I will say that I'll say something for you. I will say that you have uh, dedicated your life to music, and uh, I've always been a little envious that you um, have have never uh, gotten like a regular job, so to speak. <laughs> now, I will say you've done some really weird uh, I've odd had some jobs. irregular jobs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you've done some weird <laughs> stuff on your road to uh, carving out a life as as a musician and a songwriter. Yes. But you uh, you've been dedicated to your craft uh, for all. All these years that I've known you, and you deserve it, man. So congratulations. Well, thank you, man. I appreciate that. And if if uh, I'm ever interviewed anywhere, I will tell them all about those odd jobs, and and people can cringe along with you. But, if only uh, there was a, a format of where if only, a songwriter like yourself could be interviewed. But uh, uh, we'll <laughs> keep our myself. eyes out for something yeah. like that. <laughs> you know, speaking of keeping your eyes out, if you happen to be scrolling through Instagram, occasionally something will pop up on your feed that makes you go, "Yikes." <laughs> <laughs> you know, I didn't see that coming, you know, right. uh, and, uh, you showed me one today that I didn't <laughs> see coming. I don't think you saw it coming. I don't think a lot of people saw it coming no. on the official Ringo star Instagram. Uh, normally you're going to see pictures of Ringo, you know, with his sunglasses on maybe making a peace sign, maybe, maybe making a peace sign. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely making a peace sign. <laughs> or, or a shot from the old Beatle days or something. Right. But, uh. Man, we retreated to just a face full of Ringo's toes yeah. on Instagram. R- Ringo, well, so I saw people chattering about this on Facebook, so I went over to Instagram to see what they were talking about, and there is a photo of Ringo's toes. Yeah, there's two. Uh, it is two photos <laughs> of Ringo's toes. Now, the first one is a, it looks like maybe a DVD or something yeah. of the Beatles Get Back documentary, and his feet are kind of in the shot. Yeah. And then the the subsequent photo is a, just a close-up of his feet indicating that he's gotten a pedicure, I think because of all the it backlash. Took a abuse. On yeah, the- everybody. <laughs> and I started looking at the, at the comments. People were like, no. And I got to say, though, I th- it could have been a lot worse. I well, mean, the, the man's toes were not particularly unwell kept. Uh, to zoom in? I, did, <laughs> I mean, he's 80. I mean, there, people have strong reactions to feet. They do. Um, on both ends of the spectrum. <laughs> right. You got some people that are just like, they just can't wait to get to some new feet photos. All about it. And then you got some people that just are just assaulted and yeah, traumatized. They recoil. I'm somewhere kind of in between. I will say that now I listen to a lot of uh, podcasts about comedy, which is weird because I'm not a comedian, but I enjoy right. listening to comedians talk about comedy. Right. I will say that I have noticed that every female comedian that is on a podcast talks about being assaulted with direct messages on Instagram where people are offering them money to send photos of their feet. So wow. that would be the one extreme that you that you reference. So setting aside that particular subculture for a moment, right. uh, I will say that in terms of men, um, <laughs> there are very few men whose feet I need to see. I will say there are many more men out there walking around in flip-flops showing their feet yeah. than men who ought to be. And honestly, the only men who ought to be showing their feet are men probably under the age of 35 who live in Southern California and are surfers. That's that's probably it. Yeah, I mean, even then, I mean, toes just kind of having that hammer toe quality or that sort of bent thing and the sort of like toe knuckle hair. I mean, there's, right. there's a, yeah, it's not great. It's not. And, and and I see a dude out in public wearing flip flops. I'm like, gross. <laughs> now, I will also absolutely go to the grocery store and flip flops. because I'm like, well, I'm not out being a real person right now. I'm just sure. going to the grocery store. Yeah, there's a difference between like, you know, going to your hundreds of thousands or millions or whatever of Instagram followers and being like, hey, here are my toes. Surprise, here are my toes. <laughs> I, you know, because there are a lot of photos that show up with that little, like, you know, 
sensitive content right. sticker on them. <laughs> and I, I might have liked to have been warned uh, before Ringo's toes just showed up. You know? Well, so here's what got me thinking. You know, we like to talk about the mundane and ridiculous sure. uh, topics on here. Are there any rock stars out there whose toes? Susanna Hoffs. That's, that's mine. <laughs> All right, so you're firmly in the camp of some of these dudes I've been hearing about on these podcasts, yeah, totally. I guess. Uh, <laughs> no. So are there any male rock stars oh. that we feel like we ever need to see their feet? Like, I can't uh, even imagine, no. you know, right? Yeah, I mean, I, it'd probably be better content if I could, like, come up with a list right now, but I just feel like that's a hard no. Yeah, it's just, uh, I'm drawing a real blank. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, I feel like I probably have, I've probably seen Dave Matthews's feet. Oh, you know, I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure I've probably seen like Jerry Garcia's feet without knowing it or thinking about it. <laughs> Joe Walsh has probably come out barefoot a time or two, I'm guessing. Right. Jimmy Buffett's always running around with no, yeah, no shoes on. Yeah, but I like, I don't need to see Elton John's feet. Oh, gosh. Can you imagine? I bet there's nothing whiter. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, yeah, just the tiny porpoises. <laughs> I, I don't need to see, I don't need to see any rock star's feet. No, no, I can, I can imagine that Roger Daltrey might have some like, okay feet. I think right. that might be like, you might not recoil, you know, just right. something about him that just kind of seems like, yeah, I don't know. You know, my dad had a big, like a big picture of Chet Atkins hands, you right. know, and, and the fact that Chet's hand, even though I think they were even arthritic at the time of the photo and they looked a little gnarled and they, right. they, they were beautiful yeah. because you knew what his hands had produced. Nobody's feet have done anything <laughs> that I, you know, like... Maybe Nancy Sinatra's feet because of the boots and being made for walking and right, whatnot. Right. I mean, but other you than that. You keep drifting back to the women and, and, and really consistently, <laughs> which is not what we're talking about. I don't know why we're just talking about the men, though. We're just talking about feet, right? we're trying feet to not be creepy. Yeah, well. Yeah, too late. <laughs> yeah, that ship has sailed. Um, you know, if Ringo hears this or if anybody gets his message back to him, I think this could be seen as just a gentle repudiation <laughs> of of that. And... You know, and Ringo, we we spent a moment here trying to see if there's ever a scenario where that's appropriate, or an, a rock star that we whose feet we'd want to see, and we just we just say no. Yeah, we, we say no. We're to not toe. picking on Ringo here. No to it's, toe. Yeah, <laughs> ring no. Yeah, uh, yeah it's, it's we're we're not singling out anyone. Ringo, uh, take those feet somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this boy needs to keep <laughs> oh, his feet inside that's the good. shoes. Um, <laughs> we could go all day. Yeah, uh, but no, we're not picking on Ringo here. Uh, as I said before, actually, I thought it could have been a lot. Worse. I thought he was like actually yeah. kind of looked fine with the uh, pedicure, but fine is all relative. Again, if you are a rock star, we just don't need to see your feet. Can I say Maxwell's silver hammer toe? <laughs> is that <laughs> part two? Okay. Now that we've gotten through that, if anyone is still listening <laughs> after the great toe experiment, um, <laughs> they're not. <laughs> we uh, actually had another uh, bit of news that we wanted to share, and this is not about anybody outside of this little podcast family. This is basically just about you and me, um, and it sort of corresponds with this upcoming 200th episode. So in 2014, Paul and I were having lunch one day, and he says to me, uh, man, every time you and I get together, we just talk about music. We should start a podcast. And I was like, I love that idea. And Paul says, uh, I've never heard a podcast. And I go, I haven't either. <laughs> so uh, 
we thought, well, that makes a lot of sense. Let's do it. Totally. So I think we actually made about 15 or 20 episodes of Suncraft before either one of us ever listened to a <laughs> podcast. So we genuinely didn't know what we were doing. I don't, we haven't gone back to listen to those first few. We might cringe or, or right. maybe we'd be maybe our instincts uh, served as well. Who knows? But yeah. uh, that's just going to be a mystery for us. Anyway, the point we're trying to get to here is that we're going to be taking a little bit of a break from each other. Oh, sorry. (laughs) Uh, It's not about you guys. We still love you very much. Yes. Um, We just need to make you choose. We just need a little time apart to get some perspective. No, we actually um, this is the end of season one. Uh, Season one has gone from 2015 (laughs) until 2022, and it's time for us to take a little break. Now, um, we are not announcing the end of Songcraft. Um, Songcraft will be back. We are going to be coming back next year. Um, So don't fear. You will have plenty more great interviews and toe talk with uh, with the two (laughs) of us uh, coming up in the future. Um, But we both have some projects that are just taking a little bit of our time and attention, and we thought this would be a good time after our 200th episode which is our next episode to take a little break but we didn't want to drop that all on you right on the 200th episode we thought we'd go ahead and and lay a little groundwork and announce that that will be coming up soon yeah and for those of you who are patreon supporters um we're going to get in touch with with you guys through patreon um there's kind of like a a pause button option that can be uh used at that point but we didn't get into all that right now but um yeah it's it's something that uh, i think we're going to come back uh i think we're gonna come back even better i think season two is going to even crush season two is going to be unbelievable i think we brought in uh, new writers (laughs) right i mean if season one was seven years season two could easily be 10 yeah uh and (laughs) and and i will say that we are going to be recording a few interviews during our hiatus uh we won't be releasing new episodes but we will be uh getting some interviews in the can uh as we have the opportunity to do some but uh yeah just just taking a minute to to put this on the back burner and the good news is uh, there's probably plenty of folks out there who haven't heard all 200 episodes. And if you have, you don't remember all of them. So go back and, yeah, go and hear them again. start listening through them again. There's a lot of uh, great wisdom from these writers to be uh, culled from those conversations. So um, Songcraft will not be leaving your life. Just taking a little break. Well, and since we're talking about business, we've got a little bit more business to take care of. We've got this Dave Alvin book giveaway, and we've got a winner. Yes, we have a winner. We invited our Patreon subscribers to send us an email, let us know that they wanted to enter the drawing for Dave Alvin's book, New Highway. We talk a bit about that book uh, on the episode where Dave was our guest just a few episodes back, but it's a really cool collection of poetry and lyrics and uh, essays and liner notes and various things that Dave has written. It's called New Highway. And we are pleased to announce that Seth Robbins is the winner of a copy of New Highway. So congratulations, Seth. We will get in touch with you to uh, get your address and send that off to you. The rest of you who did not win, you can still get the book on Amazon or wherever you buy books. And we definitely recommend it. Seth, we hope you can read. (laughs) If not, then give it to someone who can. (laughs) And that's not the only book. That no. we want to talk about today. It's not, not the only book by a long shot that you're a part of. No, there's another book, and this one is this one is a biggie. Uh, so I have been working with 
Roger McGuinn, our guest on today's episode, and Chris Hillman and David Crosby, who are the three uh, surviving founding members of The Birds, to put together this incredible coffee table book called The Birds, 1964 to 1967. It focuses on the original lineup of the band, which includes those three guys, plus Michael Clark and Gene Clark, uh, no relation. And um, it's just an incredible look at uh, a mid-60s American band that was the closest thing that that this country had to the Beatles. They were um, such a phenomenon. And and the birds went through various incarnations. They experimented with different types of music. But this really takes a look at that first lineup. And the the book is a huge 10-pound coffee table book, oversized, 400 pages, 500 photos, brand new oral history from Roger and David and Chris truly special thing for birds fans um it's available at birdsbook.com now obviously i have an interest in this because i was involved in the creation of this book um so you're recusing yourself from this episode from this point on i'm recusing myself (laughs) from any further commentary on any celebrity toes um (laughs) no but uh we're really proud of it it came out great it was a huge undertaking there's a lot of photos that have never been seen there's a lot of rare photos it's uh it came out great i mean it's truly a work of art so there's a standard edition there is um a signed version a deluxe edition that is signed by chris hillman and roger mcguinn and that is limited to only 1600 copies and then there's a version that is limited to about 800 copies that is signed by all three guys um and the the different signature variations have other different bells and whistles so um you know there there's one for all budgets some of these uh deluxe versions they're they're pricey but they're also super rare and then you got the standard edition which is still uh, a hefty book it, it ain't cheap but it's uh it's not quite as uh, as wild as some of the others so whatever your budget all versions are collectibles and truly a special thing for birds fans well every book that you guys put out is of super high quality and i can tell you this right now if you want anything that's signed by david roger and chris yeah you're probably going to need to get this book yeah this is this there's is, not this too is many opportunities one. to like, right yeah. Get those guys together in a room and sign your, your program or your right. you know, whatever. So Yeah, there's not gonna be any more birds tours. Uh, you know, no. that's that this is this is definitely a super special item, something very collectible, an important piece of history and something that was super cool for me to be involved with. We've had um, David Crosby and Chris Hillman uh, on previous episodes of Songcraft, which was great. And it was cool to kind of complete the the trilogy, so to speak, by having Roger McGuinn on for this very special 199th episode of Songcraft leading up to the big one next time, number 200. So uh, yeah, we'll talk more about that hiatus and and about all kinds of fun stuff uh, next time on that milestone 200th episode. But right now, Let's hear from Roger McGuinn. <laughs> Part three. Roger, welcome to Songcraft. Thank you. It's great to speak with you. Um, I know that you have, uh, you're obviously very much identified with, with Southern California. Um, you live in Florida now, but you started out in Chicago. And uh, I know that folk music was a big part of your formative years and you studied at the old town school of folk music there. Um, would love to hear a little bit about when you were growing up in Chicago. Um, what kind of music were you hearing, you know, whether it be from your parents or, or from the radio. Um, but, but what was it that you heard that first kind of caught your ear and made you think, Oh, this is something maybe I want to do. 
Well, the first thing that really caught my ear, um, it was 1956, and I had a transistor radio, which at that time was a new invention. And it was kind of a, a game changer because it meant you could listen to what you wanted to listen to instead of um, mm -hmm. listening to a big wooden box in the living room with your parents. Right. And I used to ride my bicycle around Chicago and I had um, WJJD, which at that time was a rock station in Chicago. And I heard, let's <laughs> smile, baby, let me, you know, I went, wow, man, <laughs> what, what, what is that? You know, and I'd never heard rockabilly. I'd never heard really the blues, you know, because I, I lived on the north side of Chicago and Chicago was kind of segregated back then. So um, <clears throat> I'd never heard. I'd never heard the blues and I'd never heard anything like Elvis Presley. And when I heard Heartbreak Hotel, that made me want to get a guitar and play music. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be curious just from kind of the Elvis and the, the rock and roll electricity that came with that, you know, at the same time you had this folk thing that I think nowadays a lot of people think of, of folk music as more uh, maybe adult music, but in that era, you had this real folk revival where folk music was really appealing to to younger people and and kind of at the same time um, that people are getting into rock and roll, they're drawn to these to these roots. And I'm wondering if there if you see kind of a correlation there, like was it was it rock music that kind of was drawing younger people back to the roots of where that music came from? In my case, um, I got into rockabilly first. I got into Elvis and Gene Vincent and Carl Perkins. Johnny Cash, the Everly Brothers. And then I, I went to a high school and the, the music teacher at the high school was a young lady in her 20s. And she invited a guy named Bob Gibson, not the baseball player, to come over <laughs> and, and to play for us. And he did a 45 minute set of folk music. And it was so exciting. It was, it was so different from, you know, the, the music I'd been hearing. And it didn't sound like the traditional folk music like Rural Lives. It was, uh, it was more, it, he punched it up. I, mm -hmm. I think he had sort of, sort of a, um, a jazz, Dixieland jazz. Yeah. The, the old style jazz influence. And I asked my music teacher what that was, and she pointed me over to the Old Town School of Folk Music, and that's where I, I learned all the, the finger picking and the five string banjo and the twelve string guitar and all that. Yeah, yeah. You know, prior to your time in the Birds, you worked as a touring musician with the Limelighters, the Chad Mitchell Trio, and eventually Bobby Darin. I, I'm assuming some of those things that you were learning at that time, you know, uh, honing your skills. Uh, made you kind of ready for those uh, for those jobs. But then after playing with Bobby, he then hired you as a staff songwriter at his publishing company in the Brill Building. Um, I think maybe one of your earliest recorded original songs is Beach Ball, which you and co-writer Frank Gehry released under the band name The City Surfers in 1963. I'd like to hear a little bit about your day-to-day -day life writing at the Brill Building. You know, it was just such an unbelievable hotbed of musical activity in that era. 
Well, um, it was a day job. You have to go to the office and you, you get there at like uh, nine o'clock in the morning. And um, around noon, Bobby would buy us hamburgers and Dr. Brown's cream soda <laughs> to wash it down with. And we'd, we'd stay there till five o'clock and we'd write songs all day. And so, you know, we, we tried writing a lot of things. The only thing I ever got anything any traction on was beach ball and i kind of quit because i was i was really into going on the road i loved the traveling i loved playing music for people and you know and and doing a day job at the real building was not my cup of tea <laughs> do you think that just being in that environment um obviously you were kind of itching to to get back out onto the road and and to to go play but do you think being in that kind of disciplined environment and being around songwriters and just kind of the the craft of of writing is that were there things that you picked up there that you kind of put in your in your back pocket that that served you uh in later years as you started writing you know for for your own voice um yeah it was definitely a good experience it was uh something to put in my back pocket as he said but i was anxious to get back on the road so i would take um, the beatles came out and I heard the Beatles using folk music chords in their rock and roll. And that gave me the idea of putting rock and roll in, into folk music. So I, I kind of combined the two, took it down to Greenwich Village and started playing it for the people in the village and they didn't like it. All <laughs> <laughs> right, all right. But the guy who ran the coffee house loved it. He put a sign outside the, the building that said, Beatle impersonations. <laughs> oh, wow. and, and so I went out to LA and I got in touch with Gene Clark. I was, I was working at the Troubadour doing the same kind of music I'd been doing in the village and nobody liked it at the Troubadour either, except for Gene Clark. <laughs> he, he came backstage after my show and he said, Hey, I get what you're doing. I like the Beatles. I like folk music. Let's write some songs and see what happens. And at the time, I think we we're going to have a, like a duo, like uh, Chad and Jeremy or something like that. And then David Crosby came along. Now, I had met David Crosby in 1960 when he was a, a young actor. He was in a play at the Ashgrove. It was called Endgame by Samuel Beckett. And it was a one-act play with four people in it. And it two of the people were in garbage cans, and they pop up and say the lines and, and pop back down. This is years before <laughs> Sesame Street. Yeah, right. <laughs> okay, so I stayed around till the end of the play and I met David Crosby, who was the guy in the garbage can. And I told him, you know, like I, I was into music and we exchanged some chords and uh, he was into Bud and Travis, I was into Bob Gibson and Hamilton Camp, you know, Gibson and Camp. And we, I showed him some songs. And I said, I, I was headed up to San Francisco. And he said, OK, well, I'm from Santa Barbara. I was just going up that way. I'll take you up there. So he took me up to Santa Barbara. And his, his mother made us lamb and avocado sandwiches. And they were delicious. <laughs> and from Chicago, I'd never tasted avocado before. You know, back in wow. the you know, 50s, I, I, I don't know if my folks just didn't get avocados or they weren't available. <laughs> I, I don't know what, what that was. Anyway. So I met David Crosby in 1960, but in 1964, he showed up at the Troubadour and started singing this beautiful harmony with, with, with uh, Gene Clark and, and, and me. And we were playing these songs that we'd just written. And 
Crosby who sing this great harmony. It's probably the best harmony singer in the whole world. Mm. And, you know, God bless him. He's, he's just an amazing guy. So David said, I want to be in your band. And I said, well, we don't really have a band here, David. We're just kind of running some songs. And he said, oh, come on, man. If I can be in your band, I know this guy's got a recording studio we could use for free. I said, you're in. You're in the band. <laughs> <laughs> and that was it. And, and so that was the foundation of the birds. Wow. Right, right. You know, it, it's, it's interesting that you guys right out of the gate had access to a recording studio, which was not necessarily typical for most young bands and and you know obviously michael clark and and chris hillman eventually came along you had this five-piece band but you guys were in the studio every night working on songs working on arrangements and then what you had that other bands didn't have was the opportunity to immediately listen back to to what you were doing and i, I kind of liken it to a a football team or a basketball team watching a tape you know of, of the game you can objectively analyze what you were doing talk a little bit about how that really helped you guys uh in terms of shaping you and and honing what you were doing you're right it was a great advantage and and we found out that three guys with an acoustic 12 string guitar didn't sound like the beatles and we wanted to sound like the Beatles. So we needed more musicians and we need better instruments. And that's when we decided to go see them a hard day's night and copy down what the Beatles were playing. And, and Ringo Starr had Ludwig drums. Okay, we got to get some of those. And then George Harrison had a Gretsch guitar. We had, we had to get a Gretsch. And John Lennon had a Rickenbacker. And then George came out with another Rickenbacker. It looked like a six string from, from the front, but when he turned it sideways, you could see six other tuning pegs sticking out the back. I said, oh man, that's an electric 12 string. I got to go on one of those. So we got, we got the Beatles instruments and then we had to get people to play them. And so we, we found Michael Clark and we got him some cardboard boxes so he could practice drums on that. <laughs> we got we got Chris Hillman. We gave him a $35 bass that we had and he, he learned how to play bass on that. But he was already a great mandolin guitar player. So he, it wasn't a big leap for him. And yeah. then Cros Crosby originally was going to play the bass, but he couldn't manage singing and playing the bass at the same time. So, so that, that's why Chris got that. And so finally, we, we got all the instruments we needed. We got the record deal with Columbia Records. And um, Jim Dixon was a friend of Bob Dylan's. And he knew about Mr. Tambourine Man. He, he had a demo of Mr. Tambourine Man. And he kind of showed it to us. And we didn't like it at first. It was, you know, too long. It was too mm. pokey. And I'd been an arranger in New York. I worked with uh, Judy Collins as musical director on her third album for Electra Records. So I knew how to rearrange Mr. Tambourine Man to make it more of a rock and roll sound and put a Beatle beat to it. It was originally 2-4 time. I, I switched it to 4-4 time. I came up with a little lick in the front and the back. And, you know, it's like... Uh, I think I've been playing around with Yezu Joy of Man's Desiring. I learned that wow. from Pete, Pete Seeger. And huh. so I, I put a little lick like that on the front and the back. Hey, 
we cut it down to two minutes and 16 seconds. And it was <laughs> just right for radio because radio wouldn't play anything over two minutes and 30 seconds that, Jeez, back right. in those days. Yeah. It's like the TikTok generation. <laughs> oh, TikTok, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, much has been made. You know, you, you mentioned the twelve string and and how you know you were working with the twelve string acoustic, and how then you began to set your eyes on the twelve string electric. And much has been made over time of of that instrument and and how it played into your sound. I'm curious, you know, back even to those days in Chicago when you were kind of honing your skills. Did the 12 string, was that an instrument that just felt really sympathetic to the skills you had already built? Or did you kind of begin to hone an approach to that instrument once you got it in your hands? Well, I, I got my first 12 string in 1957. I went down to the south side of Chicago and I bought a Regal 12 string because I was into lead belly and, and he played a 12 string. So, And then, of course, Pete Seeger played a 12 string. And so I, I had this while string really early on, Very, you know, yeah. yeah. Was that transition from acoustic 12 string playing? Cause you, you, you get something very different, obviously with what you're doing with the birds, you get that, that sustain, that chime, you know, it's something that you, that you can't quite get on an acoustic guitar. Was there sort of an, an adaptation phase or, or was it something that just came out very naturally for you and you were able to almost just effortlessly adapt what you did to, to kind of a different format? Well, the first thing I, I noticed on a 12 string was that you, you wanted to play notes a little slower and let them ring because the 12 string had so much resonance and harmonics and so on. Um, but what happened with the birds was we pl I plugged my electric 12 string into the board. I'd go into the control room and plug it into the board. And Ray Gerhardt was the engineer at Columbia Records at that time. And these guys were really old school. And, and you know, the, the knobs were, were like, uh, you know, three or four inches wide. <laughs> right. So what he did was he plugged the, the 12 string into, I think it was two um, LAUAs, the, the uh, compressors. Yeah, LAUA or LA2A or something like that. And and so it was one out of one into another. It was in series. And what he did was he squeezed down the sound of the electric 12 string to be more like a wind instrument. Hmm. It, it sustained. Wow. Because the original sound of the Rickenbacker 12 string was kind of thuddy. It would yeah. just go, it would fall off ah. quickly. So you play a note and you go moan like that, but you put plug it into these compressors and go boom. Wow. So there's yeah. the sustain forever. Yeah. You know, I mean, you could make it sustain for 15, 20 seconds, whatever. Anyway, that was and 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 the reason I the reason I think he did it was not to make that sound. It was because th these guys were old school and they were scared of rock and roll and they were afraid that. <laughs> They were afraid we we're going to break their equipment. <laughs> yeah. Well, so yeah, they, they turned it into a harpsichord almost. They put it through these uh, compressors to kind of clamp it down so it wouldn't blow up the machine. Yeah, you know? <laughs> right. Well, and that, that in and of itself, it's so different than what we're accustomed to in rock and roll, which is just hammering away at, at chords or hammering away at power chords. But there's something when you're able to arpeggiate all those parts, there's something kind of inherently percussive about it without having to be quite so aggressive. So it's, there's, there's a dreamy quality, but you're still, the, the rhythm is always being carried just in that arpeggiation. Okay, so, so what we did was um, there, there would be a rhythm part and that was David Crosby. He was a, 
wonderful rhythm player. Excellent, excellent, and harmony singer as well. And, and then he put down the rhythm part, and I would play a, um, a guitar part. Mm -hmm. It was our, I used to use arpeggios because I was a banjo player, so I was using a lot of the, you know three three finger kind of picking on on the guitar. Yeah. And then I, I would put a lead part over that. That was an overdub. You know, another one of those birds classics that is really identified with that 12 string sound that we're talking about is of course turn 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 which was written by pete seeger whom, whom you've mentioned based on uh verses from the biblical book of ecclesiastes um but that song was originally recorded by the limelighters who we mentioned you were you were touring with them at the time um it was uh also recorded by judy collins uh during the session that you referenced uh that you were uh playing on and, and arranging um and the Limelighters record and the Judy Collins record of Turn, Turn, Turn are, are pretty different from one another. But the Birds version is a whole different thing entirely from from those records. Uh, I'd love to hear about what drew you back to to that song, you know, once you were in the Birds and, and, and kind of how you approach putting it together in that different kind of way. Well, when Pete did it, he did everything, turn, turn, turn. There is a season, turn, turn. And a time to every purpose under him. And Judy did it pretty much like that. And the Limewaters did it the same way, pretty much. They, they did a folky version of it. And what, what I did to it was I, I put a rock and roll beat to it. I went, everything turn, turn, turn. It is a season, turn, turn. So and I, I rocked it up. What was it that made you kind of harken back? Because you had obviously been involved with that song in the past. What was it that kind of brought it back to you uh, for the for the birds setting? I was on a bus tour with the birds, and somebody asked me if I knew that song, and it kind of came out like, you know, like that. Yeah. So I, I was more into a rock and roll mentality. Yeah, yeah. You know, I... I saw somewhere that there were a lot of takes that went into recording that song. Is that the case? Yeah, it's true. Well, first of all, you have to understand that Columbia Records was very nervous about the original Birds as a a band hmm. you know, playing in the studio because studio time cost thousands of dollars. You know, yeah. it's like a lot of money. So the, um, Terry Melcher was friends with with uh, Brian, he, he, he knew, uh, Brian Wilson, he, he knew that the Beach Boys didn't always record their own band tracks, that Brian Wilson had invited the Ricking crew. Mm. So they came over and they played on Mr. Tambourine Man and the flip side, I Know I Want You. And we knocked those two things out in one three hour session. I was allowed to play on it because I was already a studio musician wow. and I had the... Uh, down so it was my breaking back at 12 string and uh, but the other birds were upset because they didn't get to play on their own band track right yeah. so was it like glenn campbell that, and and the whole team no 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 glenn, glenn wasn't there okay it was um it was hal blaine uh let's see um larry nectel um a few other guys yeah anyway it was only about five guys and me 
but the birds wanted to play in their own records. So, okay, they, they campaigned about that. They said, we, we want to play it on our own records. And after that, they got to play on it and it took 77 takes to get turn, turn, turn. <laughs> wow, <laughs> amazing. been talking primarily about arrangements here but let's get into some some songwriting um you know even though you and and gene clark co-wrote uh you won't have to cry and it's no use on the first birds album uh, it wasn't until the second album that you were a writer on a birds single with the song it won't be wrong which was uh co-written with harvey gerst um and that song has some really interesting uh tempo changes and, you know, again, it highlights kind of your knack for arrangement, uh, both on other people's songs and, and songs of your own. I'm curious for you, you know, when it comes to an original song, do you think of arrangement as part of the actual writing process? Or do you kind of write, get the structure of the song down and then arranging as a separate process that happens, you know, in the studio or with the band or, or are they just intertwined? I think they're intertwined. Um, I, I remember being really influenced by the Beatles when we did uh, with the uh, you Won't Be Wrong. So it, yeah. it was, it was uh, a Beatle-y kind of thing, or just trying to you know, emulate that sound. The first single from the Birds' Fifth Dimension album was Eight Miles High, which you co-wrote with Gene Clark and David Crosby. And I, I love the, the guitar playing on that song, just these kind of lurches and stabs. You know, the, there's, there's such a sweetness to the harmonies in the guitar. It kind of like has these jagged moments. And I understand that your guitar work on that song drew a good bit of inspiration from John Coltrane. What can you tell us about that? Okay, well, we were on the road and I had a... A new invention, it was called the cassette recorder I bought in, in London. And it, it was so new that it didn't have any pre-recorded cassettes. So I, I bought several blanks and we went to a house somewhere in the Midwest. We were on this bus tour and David Crosby had a friend who had John Coltrane and Ravi Shankar uh, records. And so I recorded those on, onto one side of the cassette for John Coltrane, the other side for Ravi Shankar. And we were on this bus tour. We, we had electricity and we had a Fender amp and we plugged it into the front and I put the cassette recorder on top and plugged it into the amp. And we listened to John Coltrane for like half an hour and then flipped the, the tape over and listened to Ravi Shankar. And that was the only music we had for a whole month. Wow. 
on a tape recorder going through a guitar amp on a bus. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it 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 like a fender, little Fender amp, you know, like a, a 212 or whatever. Right. And, and so, but this line. came up in in Coltrane and it just stuck with me so by the time we got back to LA and recorded eight miles high that was that was the, the lick you know wow. like... a lot a lot of uh, modern jazz kind of stops and starts So we were on the, on the road with this uh, tour bus and we stopped at a railroad crossing and it, it was a, a coal train. <laughs> <laughs> Man, <laughs> it's, it was a train full of coal. It was like every, every car I had was like, you know, like full of coal. <laughs> Why well, you guys just couldn't get away from Coltrane. <laughs> oh, I love, and I got to see him live in Chicago at Mother Blues. It was, it was toward the end of his wow. life and it didn't look well, but he, he played great. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I, I know too, that that song, you know, caught a little bit of uh, a little bit of flack. People thought it was a, it was a, a drug song. Tell us a bit about, we know obviously that the musical inspiration came largely from Coltrane, but talk a little bit about the, the lyrical inspiration. Well, it was um, airplane ride, and I, I'm really into airplanes. I, I wanted to. We wanted to write a song about our tour in England, and we're coming back from England, and the plane was at like thirty nine thousand feet. And Gene Clark and I talked about it, and you know, he, I said, "Okay, how how high do you think this is?" And I said, "Oh, maybe seven miles high." <laughs> he said, "He said seven miles high, huh?" Because the Beatles had a song called Eight Days a Week, hmm. and he thought eight was a cooler number. So so said, well, we can change it to eight miles high. What, what's the difference? You know, poetic license, <laughs> who's going to care? Well, right. the radio stations got a hold of it, and they did the math, and they said, wait a minute, commercial airliners don't fly eight miles high. They must be talking about some other kind of high. Wow. <laughs> right. <laughs> and the controversy began. Yeah, yeah. It was it was a Gavin report came out with it. And the, to this day, they stand on the we were right. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you probably sold more copies that way anyway. So jokes yeah. on them. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it didn't get up as high in the charts as it probably could have. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the second and third singles from the Fifth Dimension album were 5D and Mr. Spaceman, both of which were songs that you wrote solo. And by that point, Gene Clark had left the group after having contributed a significant portion of the original songs. Um, you know, th that can be an interesting dynamic when one main writer leaves, there's a gap there. And in, in one sense, it's like, okay, that's, that's more that I can contribute. But I also wonder if there was a sense of pressure that came along with that as well. 
yeah, I guess, you know, but we, we, it was such a fluid thing going on then. It was like, you know, one, one thing after another, we, we didn't kick Gene out. He, he quit, you know, he just couldn't handle the pressure. Mm -hmm. And, um, I found out later that Jim Dixon and Eddie Tickner are, co-managers had been kind of thinking about him as the next Elvis Presley that wow. they were going to spin him off as a solo act. Oh, wow. 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 Well, by the birds fourth album younger than yesterday, Chris Hillman was starting to emerge as a songwriter and the two of you collaborated on, so you want to be a rock and roll star, um, which was the, the lead single from that album. Uh, tell us a bit about how that song came together. There was this lick from, um, I think it was Miller Thompson who played with Mary McKeeba. I showed that to Chris, and he came up with... Uh, okay, so it was similar. Uh, and we wrote the song based around that. But he'd been working with um, Mary McKeeba and do, doing some stuff with South African musicians. And so he was into that mode. And we were looking at this teen magazine full of, you know, one hit wonders. And we said, wow, you know, like, it's kind of funny that there's uh, somebody who's really famous for one week and then you never hear from them again. <laughs> and we, we thought it'd be uh, like a, a funny thing to write a song about how to be a rock and roll story. It's really interesting that you would write a song that has that much kind of self-awareness about being a rock and roll star, still in what kind of were the early days of rock and roll. What, what caused you to look through the window from that direction and write that song? Well, it was kind of scary. If you, if you were in that position, I remember being tackled on the way from a venue to the car. You know, we had these cars and sometimes they'd be like um, a football field away from, mm. from the venue. And, and the fans were, were very enthusiastic and sometimes they would tackle you and, you know, try to get a souvenir, <laughs> whatever. So it, it was a, a frightening experience at, yeah. at sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I certainly don't have to tell you that the that the Birds was a band that was constantly going through lineup changes. <laughs> um, by the time uh, the Notorious Bird Brothers came out in 1968, uh, David Crosby was gone, and and you guys were briefly playing as a three piece prior to regrouping with Kevin Kelly and and Graham Parsons to record the now classic Sweetheart of the Rodeo album, which definitely explored country music more overtly than, than you guys had in the past. You'd kind of hinted at it, you know, b before, but that was a real serious exploration of uh, country music. And even though you didn't write any songs on the Sweetheart record, there was a song called Drugstore Truck Driving Man that, that you and Graham wrote that appeared on the next album, Dr. Birds and Mr. Hyde in 1969. And 
I've read that that song came about after kind of a, a prickly encounter with famed country music DJ Ralph Emery. Paul and I are both Nashville natives, so R- Ralph Emery was definitely a, a presence uh, when we were growing up. And I'd love to, to hear the story that inspired that song. First of all, I, I got to say that Graham was such a great inspiration to go to record country. He, he was so in love w- with country music that he inspired us. And even though we had done like a Satisfied Mind and a couple of other country-ish songs on the Birds records, we didn't ever think of going to do a whole album of country music, but Graham inspired us to, to do that. Okay, so we did that. And You Ain't Going Nowhere, the Bob Dylan song that he sent down from from his uh, basement tapes was really well done with Lloyd Green and and, a lot of wonderful studio musicians. And we had a demo of it and we took it over to Ralph Emery at WSM, hoping he would play it on the radio for us knowing that he had like uh, coverage from Canada to Cuba, you know, and (laughs) in fact, I was, I was just down around Cuba on on a ship and I I could hear WSM still coming in. Wow. (laughs) It's amazing. It's got amazing coverage. Okay. So we went to um, Graham and I went, went to WSM and we said, here's our new single. Would you play it on the radio? And he put it on a preview turntable and played about 10 seconds worth. They said, no, I'm not going to play that on my show. We said, said, why not? He said, well, you know, what's it about? I said, I don't know. It's a Bob Dylan song, man. (laughs) (laughs) He said, yeah, well, anyway, he wouldn't play it. He knew his audience. Now, Now you have to give him credit he was a professional broadcaster he'd been working for many years and and you know broadcasting and he knew what his audience which was mainly a bunch of truck drivers (laughs) (laughs) would would want to hear and it was not that it was not a Bob Dylan song <laughs> right. that, that would have cryptic lyrics. You know, it's like uh, clouds that swift, rain won't lift, gates won't close, railings throw. Now, now it's not going <laughs> to They wouldn't get that. They'd go, what? <laughs> what <was that? laughs> right. So, so Ralph was right. You know, you have to give him credit. He, yeah. he knew what his audience wanted and he wouldn't play it. So, okay. Time goes on and Graham and I were in London in a hotel room and we had a uh, guitar and we were passing it back and forth and saying, well, you know, remember that, remember that DJ in Nashville who wouldn't play our record? Let's write a song about him. <laughs> <laughs> He's a drugstore truck driving man. He's a head of Q-plus plan. When So it's a little <laughs> pejorative. I understand that, but yeah. <laughs> Do you know if Ralph heard the song? Oh yeah, oh yeah, he did. Because um, he used to have a TV show, 
mm. uh, Nashville now. And I was on it a few times. And I think the first time I was on it, he said, now, Roger, he said, Waylon Jennings was on the show last night. And he told me that you and Graham Parsons wrote a song about me. What's that all about? I said, oh, well, you know, Ralph, we're just kind of kidding around and having fun. He said, well, how is Graham Parsons? I said, well, he's still dead. <laughs> oh, God. Jeez. <laughs> oh, That's wild. <laughs> song number two on the way. <laughs> uh, but, you know, Ralph and I kind of made made up and he said well, well we can we can get along together i said yeah yeah okay <laughs> right <laughs> well in 1969 you released a song uh called the ballad of easy rider which was uh is for the iconic film easy rider and that's really kind of what we've come to know as your first foray into solo performing even though the birds did a, a version later um and apparently bob dylan actually had an early hand in that song and and that one ended up being a, a bit controversial i think that song did tell us how that all unfolded peter fonda had used a lot of um, rock and roll records on the soundtrack of the movie easy rider now, I'm not sure if that's the first time. Mike Nichols might have done that before. But um, anyway, Peter used rock and roll records on the soundtrack. But he wanted one song that was custom made for the movie, Easy Rider. So he, he flew to New York, screened the movie for Bob Dylan, hoping Bob would write him a song. And Bob wrote some notes on a little paper napkin that was in the screening room and handed it to Peter and said, here, give this to McGuinn. He'll know to do with it. <laughs> and it was the river flows. It flows to the sea, wherever that river goes. That's where I want to be, flow, river, flow. Um, so Peter got back on a plane in New York, flew, flew back to L.A., came over to my house, and he presented this napkin to me like it was the Holy Grail. <laughs> he said, Bob wants you to have this, man. And I looked at it, and it said, the river flows, it flows to the sea. So I got my guitar out and made up a tune for it. And, and uh, recorded it, I mean, and wrote the second verse. All he wanted was to be free, and that's the way it turned out to be flow, river flow. Let your waters wash down Take me from this road To some other town Go river, go Past a shaded tree Flow river, flow Flow to the sea Flow river, flow Flow I got to tell you about the second verse. Okay, so Dennis Hopper was, you know, behind the movie. He was, I guess, a producer or whatever, but he, he, he and Peter were making the movie. And I was standing at this elevator, I think it was Columbia Records, after we'd, I'd recorded something for Peter. And Dennis Hopper said, all they wanted 
was to be free. And that's the way it turned out to be. What's that supposed to mean, man? I said, <laughs> I said think about it, Dennis. He went, oh, wow, that's heavy, man. <laughs> All you had to say was think about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you had to think about it. <laughs> now I get it. <laughs> oh, I get it. I get it. <laughs> so, you know, they went to heaven or somewhere. <laughs> okay, so... I used to stay up till five in the morning it was as a habit. And so it was no big deal when Bob called me at like three o'clock in the morning. And, you know, hi, this is Bob. Uh, hi, Bob, how you doing? Oh, good. You know, um, you know, this credit on Easy Rider, I don't, I don't want my credit on there. Take it off, I, I don't need the money. <laughs> I said, okay. <laughs> what a guy yeah right <laughs> wow fair enough <laughs> um well in 1973 uh you released your first solo album which was self-titled and um most of the songs were co-written with jacques levy who would really become kind of a mainstay in terms of of a co-writer uh, across your uh solo records in the 70s and um you know you guys had had been writing you know even on some of the bird stuff i think chestnut mare was probably one of the more notable songs you guys had had collaborated on in in the birds period but um as you're kind of emerging into your your solo project you know, Levy really became your songwriting partner, so to speak. Whereas during the birds, you know, you might write a, a song with Gene, you might write a song with Chris, you might write a song with David or somebody else, but talk about how kind of having a primary collaborator, almost kind of going back to those Brill building days where you have these songwriting teams. Um, in what ways did that kind of impact your creative process as a songwriter? Okay, well, I, I was never really motivated to be um, a songwriter like Gene Clark was, you know, like he, he was very prolific. He would write songs all day long. And I'd write a song every once in a while, like Mr. Spaceman, if, if it struck my fancy. But what happened was I was working with the birds. It was at Fillmore East. And Jacques Levy sent his really pretty girlfriend backstage to talk to me and said, uh, she said, my boyfriend wants to write a Broadway musical based on country rock. And uh, he would like you to collaborate with him. I said, oh yeah, okay. And then he came backstage and I could see why he sent his pretty girlfriend in first because he's a big burly guy. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> and so Jacques and I got to know each other and we started writing. And that, that's where Chestnut Mirror came from. It was from that country rock musical, which never got put on Broadway, but it's uh, got 26 songs that we wrote together and, and there are a lot, of, a lot of good songs in there. Yeah. Okay, so Jacques and I, developed a friendship and we we started writing he'd come out to to california and we'd spend a couple of weeks writing songs and he'd go back to new york and so on and it became what kind of a tradition where we write songs every year or so and and for the next album and so on and it was his he called it his other profession because he was already a, a broadway director and um he did, you know, did Broadway. He was friends with Sam Shepard and they, they did a lot of stuff together. Anyway, 
It was uh, a really good collaboration and I really enjoyed writing songs with him. And then, oh, the Rolling Thunder thing came up. Okay, I was living in Malibu, California and Bob Dylan was my neighbor. And he used to come over to my house and we'd hang out. And one time he noticed a basketball hoop over the garage. And he asked me if I had a basketball. Well, I didn't because when I was 15, I jammed my finger on a basketball and I couldn't play guitar for a couple of weeks. So I was not really keen on basketball. <laughs> but the next day I went out to a sporting goods store and bought a basketball. And I called Bob's house and he was out, but I got Sarah, his wife at the time. And I said, well, tell Bob I, I bought a basketball. And she said, oh, he'll be thrilled. <laughs> I, said, I said, really? <laughs> okay. So the next day, Bob came over and we were playing one-on-one -on -one basketball in, in the backyard. And he said, I want to do something different. I, now Bob Dylan is saying he wants to do something different, like strap rockets to our back and go to Mars. You know? <laughs> I said, what do you mean, man? He said, I don't know, something like a circus. I said, okay. And that was it. That's all he said about that. And we went back to playing basketball. Of course, he was better than I was. And a couple of weeks later, I was on the road with my band uh, up and down the East Coast. I had some dates booked with my band and I had some time off. And I wanted to go to Greenwich Village where I used to live. And so I, I went there and I went to Gertie's Folk City and that's where I bumped into Larry Sloman, who at the time was a reporter for Rolling Stone magazine. And Larry said, you know, I think Bob Dylan is over at the other end or the bitter end or whatever it was called back then. I said, well, let's go see. So we went over there and there's nothing happened at, at, at the bar. But we walked back a little further and there was kind of a dark room and we walked in and Jacques Levy and Bob Dylan were sitting there having a couple of brandies and they saw me walk in and they stood up and the brandies went flying like an old Western movie. They, they knocked <laughs> the table over and they said, Roger, we were just talking about you. We're putting this tour together and we'd like you to go on that. I said, oh, man. I'm not sure I can. I got these dates booked with my band, and, you know. Uh, but the next day, I called up my agent and postponed the dates. And I said, um, I, I want to go on the Rolling Thunder review. And that was the beginning of that. Wow. <laughs> wow. I mean, it, it, just the thought of Bob Dylan playing basketball in a backyard is is enough of a circus mindset for me. I, I can't even hardly picture that. And I the know fact that he was good it's at so it. bizarre. It's so bizarre. Yeah. But, but he's a sports guy, you know. He he has he still owns a boxing uh, thing in L.A. He's yeah. got this. Wow. The yeah. the mystery just continues with Bob Dylan for me. Yeah. <laughs> um. I want to ask you about more of a kind of a deep cut uh, from your fourth solo album, Cardiff Rose. Uh, there's a song on there called Rock and Roll Time. And uh, to me, uh, it sounds like The Clash. Um, it's got a very punk rock kind of attitude, um, which is kind of wild. Do you think I'm a loser? Just stand in your way. To the future that you planned yesterday, 
then I look to see who you wrote it with, and it's written with Chris Christopherson and, and Bob Newworth, which, you know, you got three guys writing a song that I wouldn't have expected from any <laughs> any of you solo, and then you put it together. I'd love to hear about that about that song. It's just to me, it's a great song, but just not something that I would have expected. Chris uh, and Bobby and I used to hang out in Malibu a lot, and uh, originally the song was. Do you think I'm a loser? Do I stand in your way? It's a, it's a country song. Yeah. And so I, I just rearranged it for a, a rock and roll song. And I was working with the, um, the band from, from the Rolling Thunder Review, the Guam. It was um, Rob Stoner and those guys. And, you know, uh, it, it just came out like a really strong rocker. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, but it was totally different arrangement. Uh, it, it was originally a country song. You know, if somebody were to ever ask me, you know, who are Tom Petty's biggest influences? I would say, well, obviously the birds, um, which is why it was kind of a surprise to me to see a, a flip of the coin in 1977 that you actually did a cover of Tom's American Girl. And that was very early in Tom's career. And so I'm curious how, how he kind of was on your radar at that point. Did you know what an influence you'd been on him at that point? Was there kind of like a tip of the cap in playing his song? I did not know about Tom at that point. Um, I was getting ready, ready to do an album for Columbia, and I had most of my songs ready to go. Needed a couple of outside songs to fill in. And my manager was around the corner, and he was playing records and tapes, and he put on American Girl. And I recognized the, the timbre of the vocal. I said, what? When, when did I record that? <laughs> and he said, no, it, it isn't you. And I said, I know, I know it. You know, it's a great song. <laughs> Who is it? And he said, it's this new guy, Tom Petty. And I said, I want to meet him. So I got to meet Tom the next day. And in fact, I invited him and the Heartbreakers to uh, come to the bottom line. And we, we did some gigs together. So Wow. Amazing. Um, and, and we remained friends uh, for a whole lifetime. You know, it was great. But but Tom had been influenced by my vocal and I was going, wow, you know, somebody like my, my vocal. <laughs> <laughs> There was a, a, a period in, I guess, around 79 to 81, where you and Chris Hillman came back together uh, with with Gene Clark for, uh, I guess, about an album and a half worth, <laughs> and then you and Chris for, for the other album and a half worth. Um, but that was, you know, it, it wasn't a Birds reunion in any way. It was just sort of guys who had been in the Birds who were coming together and, and making music to represented, you know, where they were at that point. Um, so you had kind of a, a different sound, but, you know, really coming out of that, um, you took a hiatus from recording for about a decade. And, and I'm curious what kind of caused you to, to say, you know, I'm going to step away from the recording studio for a while. Yeah. Well, uh, the eighties were a tough period for me. 
the, the thing we'd been doing in the 60s was kind of passe. And what happened was there was a, I think a 20th or 25th anniversary of the Troubadour. And I, Doug Weston and I were good friends and I, I went and played for free. Again. And Gene Clark was there and Gene got up on stage with me and we did a couple of songs together. And somebody said, you guys ought to go out on the road as, as a duo. I said, well, okay. I, I wasn't, wasn't doing any, anything else and he wasn't either. So we did that, we, we did a duo and it, and, and gained some traction. And then we got a, a record deal with Capitol Records as I think it's a duo originally, then then Chris Hillman came along. So we got McGuin Clark and Hillman. And then we went down to Criteria Studio in Miami and the Albert brothers were the producers and they didn't want it to sound like the birds. So that meant I couldn't play my Rickenbacker or, or sing. Wow, geez. <laughs> uh, wow. Except I had one song. But wow. it, was, it was done on an acoustic 12 string. I, I couldn't play Rickenbacker. I couldn't sing much. <laughs> uh, and it was kind of a disco approach to music at that point. It was not my favorite band or experience. Yeah. Yeah. So is that, is that kind of what, what led you to just sort of taking a break, just needing a, needing to regroup? Yeah. Yeah. You, I mean, you mentioned the eighties just sort of feeling like a little bit of a, uh, no man's land you know for you musically um but but then you came back strong in 1991 with the back from rio album and we just discussed the the tom petty relationship and the friendship there you guys did that single king of the hill um together and as a duet um that song actually did really well went to number two on the billboard hot mainstream rock tracks chart You also wrote a song on the album called Your Love is a Gold Mine with Dave Stewart and then Carphone with Mike Campbell of the Heartbreakers. And I, I think th there must have been a great energy at that point. You're working with people that, that know what you do well. They, they, they might have been bigger fans of, of your music than you might have even expected. What kind yeah. of energy did it come from working with people who revered your music that way? Well, it was great. It was great working with Tom, especially. And I got to tell you this story. It's like, my wife and I went to see Tom and the Heartbreakers in Tampa, Florida at a sports arena and they're throwing Frisbees and one of them sailed down and hit my wife Camilla in the eye. And oh, it wasn't, it wasn't serious, but one of the ushers saw it and said, well, you know, we should take you backstage and you know, have somebody take a look at it. So we walked backstage and just as we were going backstage, Tom and the Heartbreakers were coming out of their bus going to their dressing room. And Tom saw me in the hall and he went, Roger McGuinn, you got to come up and do some songs with me. And, you know, <laughs> 
this is Tampa in the middle of the summer. I was wearing white shorts and a red Hawaiian shirt. <laughs> I looked Everybody, like, Mike Love. <laughs> I, I, I looked like I was going to a Jimmy Buffett concert. <laughs> okay, so but I got up on stage and did a couple of songs with Tom. Anyway, the next day, Tom invited us out to the beach hotel where he and his family were staying at the time and his daughters were quite young at the time so we were flying kites on the beach and tom said you know in a couple of weeks i'm going to tour europe with bob dylan i said oh man you're going to have so much fun because i remembered the rolling thunder review and how much fun that was well i didn't realize he'd he'd been on tour with bob all over the world except for europe he'd been on tour in australia new zealand japan and so on Anyway, Tom said, well, I'll ask Bob if you can come along. I said, okay. <laughs> so the next day he called up and said, yeah, I talked to Bob. He said, bring him along. He can be the opening act. Huh. Huh. Okay. So the way the tour was structured was Tom and the Heartbreakers were the house band. And they, they came out and backed me up on a couple of bird songs. So they did their set and they backed up Bob and his stuff. And we all got together at the end and sang Knocking on Heaven's Door. And it was a wonderful tour. It was wow. Excellent tour. Well, on, on that tour, Tom was reading a book called Papa John by John Phillips, my old friend from the village. I, I, I'd known John Phillips for years and years and years, and John and Michelle. And we decided, I read the book after Tom did, we decided that would be good material for, for a rock and roll song. So I had a, a tune that I've been messing around with and I showed it to Tom and he thought that would be good. So we wrote King of the Hill based on that. Wow. Hmm. Wow, wow. Um, you know, we, we've talked a lot about co-writers, you know, obviously uh, Gene Clark, Jock Levy, um, Tom, um, but your 2004 album limited edition was almost entirely written with your wife Camilla and I know you'd written three songs I believe with her on the back from Rio record so obviously you guys have written together um, quite a bit there's always something interesting about undertaking a creative endeavor with somebody that you also share life with and I'd love to hear a little bit about how that works for for you guys as husband and wife to 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 collaborate and, and work on songs together Oh, yeah. Well, um, I, I guess the first one happened back in, um, we were living in Century City, and I had a tune, and I showed it to Camilla, and she, she and I co-wrote a song, and that we, we've been doing that ever since, and she's my <clears throat> preferred co-writer at this point. Hmm. Yeah, it's certainly convenient. <laughs> yeah, well, she's always there. Nobody's late to the session. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we, we've written quite a few songs and had a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. Is that something that unfolded just very, very naturally? Or was there kind of a, an, an awkwardness into getting into the groove of, of writing with your spouse? I, th I think it was natural. It was just, um, you know, something to do, something yeah. to do. You know, the other thing about that limited edition record is it really kind of brought back that 12 string jangle, you know, that, that people so associate with with Roger McGuinn. And, you know, we, you, you mentioned when you were doing the stuff with, with Hillman and Clark that they didn't really want that bird sound. And, and we talked about 
you know, rock and roll time being a song that, that very much diverged from that. And you've diverged from that a good bit uh, over the course of your career. But there's, you know, something that's so inextricably linked with Roger McGuinn and the 12 string Rickenbacker guitar, which I'm sure in some ways is, you know, kind of... Um, kind of flattering to be so associated with such an iconic instrument. But I wonder if there's something about that, that, that is a bit creatively limiting or, or, or do you ever feel like you're kind of stuck in this box when you do a lot more than just that one thing? Well, I, I've got this um, project called the Folk Den Project, which I've been doing since 1995. And I, I put a traditional song up on the internet for free download uh, there are over 300 MP3s available for free download now, and the idea was to keep the old songs alive. And and I don't just use the the Rickenbacker, although I do at, at some sometimes, but a lot of it's the five string banjo, twelve string guitar, six string guitar, mandolin, and lots of vocal harmonies and so on. So. I'm not limited by by the twelve string sound, although I do enjoy it. I like it. It's it's a sound that's pleasing to me, <clears throat> and and uh, I still do it. It's just not something I do all the time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, um, you and I have have been in, involved in the creation of a. Uh, 400 page coffee table book about the birds from 1964 to 67, which you uh, put together with uh, with Chris Hillman and, and David Crosby. And it's a great um, oral history of the band that you guys have have done and an amazing over 500 uh, photographs and in, in a huge coffee table book that is also could be a weapon or a workout tool. It's so heavy. Uh, so we're really excited about uh, about about that coming out and, and some great memories that you guys have, have shared in that. And it was uh, really fun to to get to work with you guys on on that project. And uh, once again, really amazing to uh, hear your stories, uh, today and, and just your, um, you know, the way you talk about your, your life and career is, is very engaging. And so, uh, thank you so much, Roger, for spending some time with us. Okay. Well, my pleasure. My pleasure. Now, um, Chris is not on the road and David Crosby just retired. I'm the last bird standing. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please take a moment to subscribe to Songcraft via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, we ask you to consider rating us and leaving us a good review. Word of mouth is important, and letting other potential listeners know what you think of the show helps us tremendously. And of course, nothing beats a personal recommendation. Perhaps take a moment right now to text or email one friend who you think would appreciate what we do and send them a link to our show, letting them know how much you enjoy it. As a reminder, you can sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com and find out how to help support us at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. And you can follow us on social media by searching for Songcraft Conversations on Instagram and Songcraft Show on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support. 